again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Our guest today is Mark Borthwick, here to talk about his new biography of his second cousin thrice removed. The book is A Brave and Lovely Woman, Mama Borthwick and Frank Lloyd Wright, from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. Mama Borthwick was a highly educated, charismatic young woman from Oak Park, Illinois, at the turn of the 20th century, soon to become the translator of the internationally renowned Swedish feminist Ellen Kay. But as Mark Borthwick writes, she lived with a man she didn't love in a house designed by a man she did. And despite her many talents and accomplishments, Borthwick would become one of the most reviled women of her era because she left her husband and young children in 1909 to go to Europe with the architect of that house, Frank Lloyd Wright, and then live with him at the magnificent hillside home he built in Spring Green, Wisconsin, Taliesin. That's where she and her children were murdered in 1914. It is quite a tale of forbidden love, devastating loss, social change, and artistic triumph, which Mark Borthwick tells well in this important addition to the literature about the self-proclaimed world's greatest architect. Mark Borthwick's resume is perhaps not quite what you would expect from the author of such a book. A graduate of Northwestern University, he served with the U.S. Army in Vietnam and later received a PhD in anthropology from the University of Iowa and then two postdoctoral fellowships. After a stint on the staff of the Foreign Relations Committee of the House of Representatives, he became the founding U.S. Executive Director of the U.S. National Committee for Pacific Economic Cooperation, and then the director of the United States Asia-Pacific Council, a project of the East-West Center. His previous book, Pacific Century, The Emergence of Modern Pacific Asia, was the textbook companion to the award-winning 10-hour PBS television documentary of that name. One minor matter worth disclosing, like today's guest, I am also a UW Press author, now under contract to write Madison, the Illustrated Sesquicentennial History, Volume 2, coming soon to a WORT pledge drive near you. With that, it is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Mark Borthwick. Thank you, Stu. It's a great pleasure to be with you. What is the most important thing people get wrong about Mama Borthwick? Well, uh, there are a number of things, so I'm trying to think what to put at the top of the list. <laughs> But I would say, um, most of all, that she was a rebel and a nonconformist when she was um, first encountering Frank Lloyd Wright. She was not that kind of person. She was very much a woman of the establishment. And she became a rebel simply by virtue of her experience of running away with him. But until then, no, she was not. What would be the items two, three, and four on that list if, if that's number one? What are some of the other misconceptions about her? Another one would be that she was an indifferent mother. She um, certainly did leave her children. That's a matter of record. But that was not without deep regret and um, I think a good deal of remorse. The letters that she wrote to her mentor, Ellen Kay, uh, reveal that it was a great struggle for her. And the record of her life before then shows that, in fact, she cared a great deal about her children, 
about their education, about being with them. And she tried to reunite with them as much as she could after she left with Wright. You note in, in um, the preface that you really only found out about this relationship and your, your connection to her as an adult. So you had a fair amount of research to do to find out. What's the mo what surprised you the most in your research? I think it was uh, most of all that Mema was a woman of the uh, who came of age at such a critical time. I really had not prepared myself for that. In fact, I wasn't sure I would have the material to write this book until I began really looking into her life and realizing that she came of age at the end of the 19th century at a time when uh, the modern world was sort of bursting upon everyone, but especially upon women. And so her story surprised me in the extent to which it developed around that theme of a woman who is entering the modern era and trying to come to grips with her own place in it um, at a time when, of all things, she meets Frank Lloyd Wright. Speaking of the research, she she had no living descendants. The writing she left was translating L and K. The relatives through the years sort of disowned her and apparently was not a, a big matter of discussion that, oh, yes, we Mama's in our in, in our family tree. How were you able to do the research and, and what resources did you find? Of course, it was a pretty cold trail. And the difficulty, most of all, was in fact finding any lineal connection with her that was in her line of the family rather than my own, because we are two separate lines of the Borthwick family descended um, from um, an ancestor in the 18th century. So, with Mema, I had to try and find what kind of connection she had outside those children who were killed with her. And the result was that I found that she had a surviving niece. She raised actually three children. We can discuss that later. But one of those children was the daughter of her sister who died in childbirth. And when I traced that descendant, I found her her surviving daughter-in-law. And she really had a very flimsy record, but it was enough. It was enough of a little bit of writing and some precious photographs. And so there at least was a family connection. Beyond that, however... The family connection simply wasn't there because Mema had no other surviving relatives. Where did you find the material to base the book on? Well, that also is a surprise. The research had been done, at least on Frank Lloyd Wright, very thoroughly. There's like a 10-foot bookshelf of stuff on Frank Lloyd Wright. Mema's research um, had been very perfunctory by all of the right biographers. So when I began to look into the public record, there was more there than I would have expected, going back even to the 1880s and the area of Chicago in which she lived, Oak Park. And there were newspaper records because Mema was such 
an outstanding individual, even as a teenager. She was making a bit of news. She was um, a very skilled public speaker, um, a pretty good little amateur actress. She made little points in the news that were useful, and that goes all that way through her early adulthood to her time with Frank Lloyd Wright. There are always mentions of Mema because she's always doing something of interest that would appear in a newspaper. A good search engine on a newspaper archives is such a valuable thing to have. Well, actually, I would, I would even go so far as to say it was indispensable. Um, and it goes beyond even the newspaper archives. The digitization of material, photographs and words, is so massive these days that the search could take me all the way to an obscure commencement publication at the University of Michigan that shows us the full 2,000-word speech that Mama Borthwick made at the commencement graduation. So, you know, only by the use of search engines in particular ways can one really delve and plunge into um, the, the archives to that degree. And I think it's something of a modern miracle, but it certainly helped make this book. This is really the golden age of historic research. The, the availability to plumb the, the archives and not have to go there, especially when we've got, I mean, you were doing some of the research during COVID lockdowns. Were there places that you would have wanted to go that you couldn't get to because of COVID? Absolutely. Uh, to begin with, the University of Michigan, because even now, um, the Bentley Historical Library there has a massive trove of um, information that they, of course, have digitized, but they also have so many boxes of materials that couldn't be digitized that I would like to have seen if there might have been something there in a box. Um, and it would have taken a long time, and, and it would have meant... Uh, uh, rummaging along you know, in a way that couldn't be done during the pandemic. But uh, that would have been one of the places that I certainly would have gone if I could have. And there were a few other archives uh, that, of course, I searched uh, and had to do so with the help of archivists. So it was other people that would help me who were still working at an archive uh, off and on during the pandemic and could help me see if something existed or look something up, those people were helpful as well. Because as our patron Saint Robert Caro says, turn every page. <laughs> well, he certainly did. I don't stand, I don't keep to that standard. <laughs> well, that that's that's why your book is published and we're still waiting for his. <laughs> you, you mentioned how much a 10 feet of, of books about Frank Lloyd Wright. I've got a couple. Everyone in Madison has a couple of Frank Lloyd Wright books. How has the period of his life with MEMA been treated in those Frank Lloyd Wright books? Well, it depends on when the book was done, in a way, uh, because the earlier books are, I would say, somewhat dismissive of MEMA. They treat her as someone who... Um, intervened almost in a way that ruined his career and may have manipulated him. Um, and in, in other words, just not 
all that flattering. But um, as it as later on, some of the right biographies at least gave her um, a place that showed how important she was for him. And uh, that became all the more emphasized um, the more they began to focus on the, her murder at Taliesin, which was such a blow to him and his his whole life path. So I would say that, um, if anything, the research has been just perfunctory about her by the right biographies. And it's partly because she remained rather out of reach just because of the reasons I mentioned, that the uh, searches were very difficult to do um, in the earlier era of writing of biographies. And I just think that uh, once she was dealt with, uh, she was largely forgotten by the, the, that community. I note that you cite uh, in the book, as one of your sources, a book by my late friend Ron McRae of Blessed Memory about their life at Taliesin. Was, was that book valuable in, in your research and understanding of the situation? Yes, Ron McRae wrote a book, Building Taliesin, that is uh, really one of the most fundamental books um, you could have on your shelf for understanding that place and its history. It's full of wonderful photographs that uh, McRae found and published in the book. Uh, and he, I think, also really began to explore Mama Borthwick in a way that nobody else had. Uh, so he looked into that past she had with Wright in Europe and her relationship in publishing with Ellen Kay. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I would really say that Ron McRae's work was one of the first real pioneering books to come out in the recent years uh, that having to to do with Mama Borthwick. That is not a surprise, and it's good to hear. We're talking with Mark Borthwick. His book is A Brave and Lovely Woman, Mama Borthwick and Frank Lloyd Wright. The title gives us a little bit of foreshadowing of the tragic end of the story. How did you hit on this as the title? Well, it was quite a struggle. I I'll spare you all the back and forth with the, the publisher on it because uh, I went through quite a few different titles. Um, for example, one of the first ones I used, and it was the one I submitted to my first draft with the University of Wisconsin Press, was Mama, let's see, the, the, the feminist and the architect, Mama Borthwick, Frank Lloyd Wright, and the Road to Taliesin. Well, that's a long and cumbersome title. And we decided that it was somewhat encumbered by the word feminist, which tried to encapsulate more than what we I was really trying to explore with Mema in the whole picture. So we kicked it around quite a lot, especially any title of a book has to try to summarize what it's about but I had to stick to the fact that this is mostly about her, not him. And so while we had to have Frank Lloyd Wright in the title, it was really important to say that this is about an extraordinary woman. And so the title came out, thanks really to some very thoughtful people at the University of Wisconsin Press, 
who I, I were the ones who actually suggested that title. It works. We actually get to the title at the end because it is in, in Wright's extraordinary letter to the, the townspeople around Spring Green after the tragedy of, of August 1914. And, and the, the phrase, a, a brave and lovely woman, is how Frank described Mema afterwards. Exactly. Um, those are Wright's words, his description of her. And again, uh, the, the obvious sort of passed me by as I realized he was the one who had come up with the title <laughs> rather than me. <laughs> well, he's such a modest fellow. I'm sure he would appreciate giving <laughs> a little shout out like that. So Mema is at the University of Michigan, is one of the very few women of the era to not only get a college degree, but a master's degree. Uh, she's got a classmate there who starts a little later, but then is part of her graduating class named Ed Cheney, who becomes a rising young executive for an electrical company. He courts her for years and years. She doesn't agree to marry him until she's almost 30 years old, which is like spinster level territory yes. at the time. Okay. Um, in 1899, did he ever believe that she really loved him? Well, you know, I believe that um, he probably struggled with that very question um, for much of their marriage. And we really don't know what the fundamental problems in their marriage really were. But the fact that she waited so long to marry him and... Um, Later, in the divorce papers and in her request for an official change to her maiden name, made it very clear that she wanted no association with him whatsoever. That it, it something was profoundly wrong for her, and I think it was just that she knew she had married the wrong man. And therefore, he must have understood that, and he seems to have reconciled himself to it, very much in the fashion of a, a Victorian gentleman. He essentially felt that somehow he could have continued with her, and he was not particularly vindictive in the divorce or in any way trying to prevent her from seeing her children. So in that sense, I think he was very much a realist not a terribly happy man, and a bit of a snob, from what I could tell from the evidence, but nevertheless, um, a decent fellow, as Frank Lloyd Wright himself admitted. Um, he just must have known that, no, Mema really had never loved him. I mean, he just seems like a, a boring electrical company executive who's very, who's prosperous and, and responsible, and and as you say, he was not vindictive. He didn't charge her with adultery, just abandonment, and, and let her gave her the divorce, which which Catherine Wright would not give Frank. So I mean, it seems like you know he accepted reality. Yes, and he was very quick to remarry. Um, so you know, he married interestingly the best friend of Mama's sister, who was still living in the house. That. Cheney house that Frank Lloyd Wright had designed for them 
had an apartment in the basement for her sister, who had helped raise the children with her. And so Edmund Cheney really was, I was just a, very much a realist in all these respects, and that he remarried quickly and um, and still had Mamah's sister living with him, even after she had left. At this point in the narrative, the late 1890s, early 1900s, what is Wright's professional status and personal reputation? Well, it's an interesting uh, contradiction. His personal status sinks rather low, but his reputation remains fairly high. And it's interesting, as I did the research, I began to look at real estate ads in the greater Chicago area, even after Frank Lloyd Wright had created this scandal. And guess what? Sometimes the advertisement for a modern house would say, in the style of Frank Lloyd Wright. And that's an indicator that he was still much admired as a brilliant architect, even if he was also considered a scoundrel. Uh, and that is rather the reputation that followed him for a good part of his life. Well, he was a scoundrel. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yes, in, yes, indeed. I mean, whether whether or not uh, he he left the family with a nine hundred dollar grocery bill when he took off or not, and the the man didn't pay his debts. He he, he was he he broke up people's homes. He was a scoundrel. That's right. He was. Um, he was a deadbeat in um, many occasions. And yet, and here's the great contradiction about Frank Lloyd Wright. He really did have the capacity to feel guilty. He even admitted um, having stiffed one of his partners in the trading of Japanese prints uh, and felt badly about it. Um, some other references to old friends, he felt he didn't really do justice by them. And when he had his breakup with the great Louis Sullivan, his former employer, he reconciled with him in the end and wanted to make sure that Sullivan was well taken care of when he became, um, well, in, uh, in, in difficult straits. So in a sense, I think there's far more complexity to that scoundrel we just talked about. Uh, he is a scoundrel. There's no question of that and maddening to a point uh, that made people just want to completely disassociate with him, which of course raises the questions, how did Mama put up with it? But in any case, Frank Lloyd Wright is a man of contradictions. And so despite these faults, he had elements of humanity about him that didn't make him just um, a textbook narcissist. There was more to it than that. You quote at length his statement after he and Mema are exposed by the Chicago Tribune in uh, uh, for living together at Taliesin in December 1911. He says, the laws and rules are made for the average. And when a man ha who has displayed some spiritual power has given concrete evidence of his ability to see and feel the higher and better things of life, 
we have to go slow in deciding he has acted badly. And that's straight out of the fountainhead. That's like Nietzsche and Superman stuff. I mean, this man, this, I mean, really. What a, what a good point you make there, because I believe that Frank Lloyd Wright only came around to articulating that kind of feeling after his European experience, after his exposure to um, Germanic culture, and the ideas of Ellen Kay, who were also very much even uh, influenced by Nietzsche. So Ellen Kay even wrote that um, the artist has greater um, privileges, you might say, of behavior in the interest of art. And Wright seized upon that and made it um, part of his self-justification and I think that only came after he left America, uh, not before. We're going to, I sort of jumped ahead. We're gonna, we need to go back and fill in a very important part of the narrative. And that is, well, two, a couple of important parts. First of all, how critical to the Mema-Frank relationship was the fact that, as you say, she lived with a man she didn't love in a house designed by a man she did. How important was the fact that the Cheney house was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright to the development of the Mama Frank affair? Well, one would have to assume it was a factor, but was it um, a catalyst and only that? I would say so, uh, but not what then created the affair itself. It brought them together. It made them plan together, and probably in the absence of her husband on a regular basis, which was acceptable in the moral code of the period, as long as there was um, a professional reason for it. But of course, we can assume that it was when they became very close. So in that sense, Cheney House was a vehicle for their relationship to develop. But still, as I point out in the book, Genie House was kind of crowded. It wasn't a big house. It didn't allow them to be alone together in it very much at all. Nor did his house at all, with its, you know, its children everywhere and clients coming and going. So the opportunities for them, even as Genie House was being built, um, I think were only limited to just those little planning sessions. Uh, when they could really be alone together. And that's probably when the the beginning of the romance occurred. And this notion that some neighbor neighboring children could spy on them spooning at Genie House, that's just nonsense, right? It appears to me to be a complete nonsense because of the vantage point that they claimed to have had, which was high up in the house next door, looking down. The Genie House windows are partially art glass, leaded glass, broken into um, segments, highly reflective, which are meant to be an essential screen to the outside as Wright um, designed them. So in that sense, no, spying um, on them seems almost impossible. Wright took privacy from neighbors very seriously when he designed that house. And I would say that um, 
uh, the likelihood of that memoir, which describes the children looking in, which was written, by the way, um, in the 1970s by a woman who was maybe nine years old when uh, all that was going on, <clears throat> plus some other unreliable aspects of the memoir make me fairly certain that that's just sort of a fairy story. Do we know for certain how and where and when Frank and Mama met? We know for certain that they met at a social event. We know for certain that it was because Edwin introduced them at that social event, an evening event, as described by Wright to some reporters in 1911. And you know, it's, um, it's per probably worth noting that this is still the end of the era of Victorian manners. And for a woman to have a familiar relationship with a man who is not her husband required her, according to the Victorian code, to have been introduced to that man by her husband. Therefore, that point of introduction was not only, as Wright described it, electrical, it was also necessary for that relationship to develop further. So again, uh, that much we do know. I have postulated, and we can discuss it, uh, why it uh, probably occurred at the so-called Westward Ho Golf Club in Oak Park, uh, because Wright was a charter member and Mama and her husband were charter were members, and so um, for various reasons, it looks very much like a correlation of uh, one of those big social events of that club, at which Edwin introduced Wright to Mama. I wonder if Frank used the word electrical very subtly because Ed Cheney was an electric company executive. <laughs> Yes, you know, I played with the idea of, of uh, making all kinds of sarcastic remarks about Edwin being in the electrical business, but decided to leave that alone. Um, but in a way, uh, Wright really believed what he had said. He really thought that it was um, some kind of destiny. He felt that they really were soulmates and naturally made for one another. Um whether it was as extraordinary as he said for both of them at that moment is open to question. But still, it's um, it's an important way of describing it because I really believe they both felt it was the most important moment of their lives. We're talking Mark Borthwick. His book is A Brave and Lovely Woman, Mama Borthwick and Frank Lloyd Wright. So in the summer of 1908, the narrative shifts briefly to Madison, as Frank, Mama, Ed Cheney, and Ed Cheney's mother pay a visit to Rocky Roost, the Lake Mendota retreat that Wright had designed for his boyhood friend, Robbie Lamb. Um, and this is part of a tour of Wright's commissions in, in Wisconsin. How important to what would follow was this Wisconsin road trip? Well, this is an inference I make, which I'm fairly confident of, on the timing of the whole event, because it immediately precedes that point at which it is generally known that Wright and Mama 
confessed their affair to their spouses. Now, why would this trip have contributed? Well, it's because who was not on that journey with them was Wright's wife, Catherine. So the two of them could be together in a kind of vacation-like setting for three days, traveling across Wisconsin, granted with Edwin Cheney and his mother, but much distract those two were much distracted by the car, by the, the travel, by the places. And I believe that at some point, Frank and Mama let their guard down in their interaction with one another, enough to arouse Edwin's suspicion. And therefore, it becomes um, a moment at which Wright's hand is more or less forced. He notes in his autobiography that this period of time was when he was full of uncertainty. He didn't know what to do with himself, how to plan for the future. And clearly something happened that forced his hand. I believe it was a slip up, a discovery of some kind that occurred on this Wisconsin road trip that caused them to finally come out with the truth. And what do we know about that situation where Frank and Mama come clean to her husband and his wife? Well, uh, there are a few descriptions of it, one of them by Wright himself. And the four of them uh, sit down together, apparently in the Wright living room. And uh, Wright and Mama come out with the truth, which leads to the usual uh, process of uh, denial and then bargaining. <laughs> uh, denial at first, it can't be true. Yes, it is true. Bargaining, well, don't do anything. On and on. Until uh, the four of them agreed that nothing would happen and nothing would come out for one year. The actual agreement between the four of them is a bit muddled because, of course, everybody comes away with a different memory of that conversation. But apparently, Edwin is pretty clear that he would, in principle, give Mama a divorce. Catherine seems to have been more equivocal, but implied that, yes, she would give Wright a divorce. And so that muddle led to um, a year of estrangement while they were still living in Oak Park with their spouses. Uh, that is, estrangement with their spouses. But in the end, it turned out that Wright was just simply not going to get a divorce from Catherine, whereas Mama would indeed receive one from Edwin. And that's where it stood. So in October 1909, they sail to Europe. They've each got their own projects and logistics. Did they have any inkling what would happen when people found out what they had done? You know, they really had not thought it through. And I think they were somewhat in denial about the full implications of what would happen. Part of that denial may have been based on the assumption that eventually they could get divorces, each of them, and that on the basis of that, they could become married. 
And that would make all the difference, truly. And that society, if they could get divorces and be married, um, there would be a lot of disapproval, but it would be understood. However, that the fact that they remained together, unmarried, was part of what contributed to the ongoing scandal um, that began when they left their families. So, I don't know, it's, um, it's just hard to um, understand the, the whole complexity of it because they all had different understandings. And Frank seems totally to have been totally oblivious to how easy he was making for people to write these stories. I mean, registering at, at hotels as Frank Lloyd Wright and wife. Exactly. Um, he had decided, I think, from early on, one of his decisions was to pretend to be married. That would have happened right away aboard the steamship going away from New York. They would have boarded as, as man and wife. And when they first checked in to London to try to pay a visit to his friend, Robert Ashby, they would have checked into a hotel as man and wife, as they did a few days later in Berlin at the Adlon Hotel. So he thought, um, hotel register, what can that hurt? And he just signed them in that way. And of course, in this case, um, people were looking. The, the word, I think, had begun to get out. People were looking. And uh, he was discovered in that sense. They, as I said, they, they had different agendas and different projects and weren't always together. Was the time they spent living together in Italy the high point of their lives together? It certainly must have been the high point, if not an equal high point to their some of their time at Taliesin in Wisconsin. I think it was a high point partly because at last they had found a place away from the world when both of them could work on exactly what they wanted to be working on. They could go on long walks along the old Roman roads around Fiesole, Italy, looking out over Florence. They had a, a cook that could take care of their needs. Um, and it was the first time their real companionship from day to day could take place in, a, in an idyllic setting. So yes, I think um, from Wright's own writing about it in his autobiography, it must have been really one of the happiest periods in the lives of both of them. This is the, the period, um, the Mamus two years in Europe is the period when she develops a, a close working relationship with the second most important person in her life, the Swedish feminist Ellen Kay. Where does Ellen Kay figure in the social changes in Europe and the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century? Well, Ellen Kay was the only child of a liberal Swedish politician, very prominent man who gave her her education uh, in, um, in a private setting. And she was uh, precocious, well-read, multilingual. And so early on in her youth, she became a leading Swedish intellectual. The more she wrote and spoke out, the more controversy she, she created. 
And it led her to then leave and tour Europe to speak about her books and um, her ideas. As a consequence of that, by the beginning of the 20th century, she was one of the most widely known people in Europe. Not just women, but people. Her name resonated with so many women, and she was called upon to speak in so many places that she really was, um, I think, one of the leading intellectuals of that period in Europe. Um, and that's why it's so extraordinary that somehow she and Mema managed to link up because um, coincidentally, Ellen Kay had very few English translators and she needed one, especially for the American market. When you say she was a precocious child and, and adolescent and had parents who raised her to do extraordinary things, sounds a lot like Mema Borthwick. I think that was part of what uh, made them uh, such good partners. Um, they both had, interestingly enough, Scottish ancestry that they were proud of, but also um, they both had encountered the um, excitement of early education and, and uh, earning um, their reputations in part based on their ability to speak, to um, engage intellectually with um, people in a, in a way that was unusual for women. So I think that um, that was a big part of their, I don't know, their simpatico relationship. Um, but ultimately, it led to Mema being an acolyte and a devotee of Ellen Kay, who was very much her senior. Um, when Mema was about 40, Ellen Kay was in her you know, early 60s. And how good, how successful was Mema as Kay's translator? Well, successful insofar as she did get some books published. But first of all, Ellen Kay, as a writer, was pretty obtuse at times. She had a way of writing in German, not Swedish, that was very convoluted and difficult to follow. And because Mema was just an early and inexperienced translator, I think she was reluctant to go out on a limb and not do fairly literal translations. The result is that the translations, as I look at them, are not highly readable. They're understandable, yes, but uh, they do present challenges uh, to someone, especially in this day and age, who is not used to the um, style of writing of a um, hundred years ago, especially in Europe. And reputationally, how how were those books received? What was Mema's professional standing as she's doing these translations? I would say she had none uh, because she was an unknown. She had really gone to search for Ellen Kay and asked to be her translator. When she came to her, she admitted, I'm sure, that she had no experience except her having translated the, the plays of um, Gerhard Hauptmann, the famous German playwright. By coincidence, 
Gerhard Hauptmann was a dear, close friend of Ellen Kay. And so I'm sure they hit it off already on the basis of that. But uh, still, Bema had to admit that she was not uh, an experienced translator. And uh, I think to some extent it shows she really wasn't. There's this internal tension or even a contradiction that Mema must have felt that she's translating the work of a woman she reveres whose work emphasizes the importance of motherhood while she herself had left her children. How, how did Mema deal with that? Well, to begin with, I think she only was half, half truthful with Ellen Kay about where her marriage stood. She admitted that she had left her husband and children, but she did not say she was leaving them forever. That much is clear from the way her letters read after she has returned to America. I believe that Ellen Kay, who had all herself had also had an affair with a married man, understood Mama's position, but also she put the highest priority on the role of mother and motherhood um, was what she had in fact based her international reputation on. That is the motherhood idea. She had written uh, the very famous book called Century of the Child, which was anticipated the works of Maria Montessori by <clears throat> at least um, a decade. And so I would say that um, she was uh, she was of that kind of um i don't know orientation um and but mema was uh, still her i think her preferred translator um by 1910 after that i'm not so sure they are discovered to be together in Europe and the way Ed Cheney reacts to the news that she was in Europe with Wright makes me think that he knew she never really loved him. I mean, he he's so accepting of this news that as compared to Catherine Wright, who just refuses to accept and refuses to ever grant the divorce, Cheney, Cheney must have understood. You know, he did. And yet there are elements of how he reacted in his quotes to the press that make one believe that he also held out a faint hope for the first few months at least that she would come to her senses and return to him. Uh, she, he says um, that she has had a rather hard time of it with the uh, public perceptions and that her friends, as he put it, still believe in her. He didn't say he did. <laughs> but it was an oblique way of saying maybe there's still some hope. Um, but I think he very soon came to the realization that there was no hope for her return. Was she the most notorious homewrecker in America of that era and the most reviled woman of that era? Well, there were other um, notorious incidents, some of them involving architects in New York and those yeah. are other stories. But um, she was considered in the Chicago area I don't know, to have been um, 
probably the most sensational and notorious homewrecker. There were always little scandals of affairs and um, divorces that implied that there had sometimes been um, another woman, but nothing of the order of what Mayma and Frank Lloyd Wright created. So to your point, yes, I would say at least in the major newspapers in which this was covered, Mayma did appear to be um, something of a vamp and a seducer that had um, ruined her marriage and that of Frank Lloyd Wright. So Wright, Wright spends about a year in Europe. Mayma has to spend two years there to, to get the divorce, uh, the uncontested divorce from Cheney. He starts, Wright starts building Taliesin in May 1911. She moves in over the summer. He joins her in October. They get they get discovered on Christmas Eve. What were the next three years of life like for them living at Taliesin between 1911 and 1914? What were their lives like? It seems that things settled down quite a, quite a bit for them. Um, at first, there was an, a, a period of I know, consternation in the community in which um, there was loose talk of um, having them arrested because they were uh, supposedly living in sin. So as the finishing touches were being put on Taliesin, um, still they were living there with a... Um, with a cloud hanging over them, as far as the community was concerned. There was even um, loose talk reported in some Chicago newspapers uh, that some people wanted to tar and feather Mayma. Um, of course, that made for a good deal of sensationalism because indeed there had been the tar and feathering of a woman in Kansas the previous year that had received national attention. And I think there was just a, a kind of fascination with the idea that a woman would be tarred and feathered because it had not ordinarily happened. It was usually done to men. Um, <clears throat> that passed, however. That, I think, was a bit of a newspaper concoction. There's no certainty that there was any serious... Um, element in the community planning to do that. But it was a beginning that was a bit rough. However, after that, to your question about those three years that followed, yes, life did settle down. People came to accept them, at least according to what Mama wrote. They even had school groups come to visit Taliesin and look at it. Um, so she actually made a very good impression with people who met her, and this was true throughout her life. And so as things settled down, um, it looked as though they were really capable of having a somewhat isolated life at Taliesin, but nevertheless a happy one. Ironically, Frank would be arrested with Olga Vanna about, about <laughs> 10 years later. I mean, this... this when when he and Olga Vanna were on the run with Olga Vanna's daughter and 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 her ex got an arrest warrant out for them they were arrested up in Minnesota this this man has a pattern 
Yes, isn't it interesting? <clears throat> Somehow, Wright seemed unable to um, settle matters in a way that uh, could establish um, his legal right to live with a woman uh, in, a, in a proper way. And um, one wonders, was it part of his defiant behavior overall that uh, because he could have taken precautions or been more patient um, in the way he approached everything. Uh, but there it is. It's, um, it's just part of him. Because laws and rules are made for the average. <laughs> and, and, and by definition, if society says you're doing something wrong, it's society that's wrong. Exactly. He really did um, believe in the right family motto, which was truth against the world. And he wasn't alone in that family that behaved and felt that way. They were they were a defiant group of Welshmen, and they just believed that they should say and behave as they pleased as long as it met their values and standards. So as of early August 1914, what is their reputation and what is the state of their respective lives? Well, I believe at that point their reputation is is um, settled down to be that of a couple who is controversial, but nevertheless uh, accepted in the community. Wright uh, even starts planning with his sister, a good friend of Mamas, uh, there in Wisconsin to design a woman's building for the county fair. So he's obviously engaging with the community. Both of them are. Um, it seems that um, in general, life had settled down for them and they were happy. But Wright, unfortunately, had taken on, as always, more than he could handle in his work. So he was away a good deal, uh, tending to his Midway Gardens project in Chicago, <clears throat> a big outdoor entertainment development. So it was perhaps still an unsettled period in this, insofar as he had to be away a good deal in Chicago. But for the murder, do you think they would have stayed lifelong soulmates or would one have eventually tired of the other? Well, it is, it is of course, hard to know on the basis of how things have gone until then, but I would say they were very solid in their relationship. And Wright himself admitted in that letter to the community that you mentioned earlier that, of course, they had had their rough patches and um, petty jealousies of one another and that sort of thing. But Mema especially was a very tolerant, forbearing person. And uh, I think a very mature person. It really would have been up to her to manage and handle um, a difficult personality like Frank Lloyd Wright. Would she have done that? Well, I think she could have at least for another 10 or 15 years. Whether it would have lasted indefinitely, I don't know. But I do think they were tested in the way a marriage was tested in their, in their time in Europe. And after they came back, they were under quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of stress, and I think their 
um, relationship had held up well under that. So I think it would have lasted a good deal longer. But um, would it have finally hit the rocks? Who knows? I don't know. It would have really depended, I think, on her. How have Wright's biographers treated this part of his life? Well, it's interesting. They have, um, first of all, I think, had difficulty handling the period in which both of them left the country again. They went to Japan. And um, it was of interest to me that no one seemed to want to actually look at what did they encounter when they went to Japan at that point. And in fact, it was a very turbulent period in Japanese period in Japanese history. Um, and so the biographers have treated that, uh, I think, superficially. As for the larger period, well, again, it's mostly centered on right. But Mema herself had a very interesting time in her uh, translation career. And she published a very important work called The Woman Movement uh, by Ellen Kay. And so I think for both of them, they saw a good deal of professional fulfillment. Wright was achieving more in um, some of his work, and especially in the great contract for Midway Gardens. In that sense, then the biographers have got it correctly <clears throat> that Wright was again beginning to um, hit his pace. He was beginning to really uh, take on big work and significant work beyond houses. He was about to get the contract for the Imperial Hotel in Japan. Um, in a sense then, Wright, who had always had ambitions to um, reach out and do big things, was about to demonstrate that indeed he could. And in that sense, I think the biographers have uh, uh, worked it out relatively well up to that point. However, then Wright goes into the doldrums, the disaster of Mema's murder, the damage to Taliesin, and the further scandal that seemed to descend upon everything from that point, plus all of his turbulence in other relationships with women, as you point out, um, is something that begins to trouble his biographers and, and they, they admit from um, the record that this is not a good time in Wright's life. Um, but up until that murder, up until 1914, I think the biographers are of the impression that Wright had great potential to keep on going in the directions he was in. After the murder, how widespread was the reaction that, well, she kind of deserved it? I think it was very widespread. Uh, this was an American culture that believed in divine retribution. And they felt that these people had created uh, the problems that had descended upon them in the first place. Uh, so the newspaper reaction across the country um, really, from one end to the other, illustrates vividly that there was rather little sympathy for either of them immediately after the murder. Only in cases where murder, where Mama herself 
was recollected by people who knew her, was there a sense of sympathy because they remembered her fondly. But otherwise, there was very little sympathy. This is such a cinematic story. You've got famous people. You've got big issues. You've got these great locations from Europe, from Iowa to Europe to Japan. You got a terrible climax. This has great potential for a screenplay. Uh, have you ever thought about that? No, I'm not tempted. Um, first of all, I think that while it has all the dimensions um, that you describe of um, being a rather spectacular movie with larger-than-life characters, the ending does not lend itself to a popular movie. The uh, How do you end something that um, results in the violent death of the most sympathetic character in the whole plot? And in fact, as I was writing the book, I kept finding ways to postpone coming to the end. Uh, I didn't want to write that part because it was as if I were murdering her myself. Um, I couldn't imagine how I was going to handle it at first uh, because it was as if I'd seen her from her childhood all the way through college, all the way through this affair, everything. And now she was going to have to die. I think that's the way it would be for even a movie audience. You really enjoy the story, but you want an outcome that is not just cataclysmic, and that's the end. And I honestly think some great scriptwriter might come up with something in, that that handles this all in a kind of flashback, um, a la Citizen Kane. But I'm not up to that kind of uh, standard, I'm afraid. We've alluded to the events of, of August 1914, but briefly, to summarize that terrible day. Just, uh, you know, in other words, what really happened on that yeah. day? Yeah. Well, it was just a very hot August day when um, everybody was going about their business and they were going to um, um, have the noon meal. Mama was there with her two children. Uh, the third child, Denise, was away with a friend. There were um, some workmen who were there as well. Um, three workmen and this 14-year-old son of one of them, all of them going about their business, and they came in to eat the noon meal. The servant, Julian Carlton, and his wife, the cook, <clears throat> prepared the meal. We don't know what the meal was. But Carlton was to bring it to them in their separate rooms of the Taliesin estate, rooms that were separated by maybe 80 feet. Carlton was apparently a very deeply troubled man, um, emotionally and mentally. Uh, we don't know all of his difficulties. But he had um, built up a resentment over, I believe, a racial incident. And um, he snapped, or something went terribly wrong. Um, on that day, he had seemed to have been planning something violent. There's evidence that he did have um, premeditation. But in any case, he took an axe 
a hand X and a can of gasoline and attacked uh, those two rooms of people. That's where he was supposed to serve them lunch. He poured the gasoline under the door of the dining room for the men um, and lit it a fire after locking the door, causing them to try to break out a window and break through the door. And he hacked them down with an ax as they came out. Separately, he seems to have attacked Mema and the children where they were eating using the same technique, the can of gasoline with fire and the ax. The stories have it that Mema was simply attacked without her even seeing him first, hit in the head with the, in the ax and then the children. But the evidence which I describe in the book suggests that rather she did uh, rise to oppose Carlton as he entered the room, struggled with him briefly, was wounded, and then her, her children were also wounded and killed. So that was the end of it. Uh, in terms of the fire beginning in the retaliation, beginning to burn the residential section, bodies lying around, two men having escaped and setting off the alarm to have people come and try to rescue who was left. But it was too late. Seven people had been killed in a mass murder. What was left to be done, of course, was to inform Frank Lloyd Wright, who was in Chicago at the time. A telephone call to him um, at his place of work at Midway Gardens, where he was with his son, um, was enough to at least bring him urgently without him knowing exactly what had happened. He and his son came, and of all things, so did Edwin Cheney, who also had to be informed. The two of them arriving together on the same train. And with that, um, the full impact was hitting right, and it nearly made him buckle right there in the train station. It was such a blow that he... Um, he sobbed through the night, and the following day, um, um, he knew that he had to bury Mema. Edwin took away the bodies of the children to be to be cremated in Chicago, and Wright and his two uh, cousins took Mema in a casket of flowers, heaped with flowers, to his family graveyard nearby Taliesin at uh, the Unity Chapel in Spring Green. And with that, with that burial, as he laid her to rest, he laid her to rest alone, sent the others away and covered the grave and left it unmarked. In his total grief, he simply could not bear even to put a marker on the grave. And um, that's the way it remained for a very long time. And then Olga Vanna puts on a grave marker with her, identifying her as Cheney. Yes, that came years later. Um, when Wright remarried, um, of course, he despised the name Cheney, and so did Mema. So no one was going to put a gravestone like that on Mema's unmarked grave. But once Wright died, 
she lost no time in having a very crude, thin sandstone gravestone made and put on Mama's gravesite that had very boldly the name Cheney. And it stayed that way for years. Um, we, the Borthwick family, um, were deeply uncomfortable with that. And we um, asked the Lloyd-Jones family, Wright's family, if we might replace that headstone. They very graciously gave us permission to do that. And so the old stone was taken away and preserved. It's preserved by uh, Taliesin Preservation. And a new stone in its place uses a quote, an epitaph, you might say, from Frank Lloyd Wright in a letter he wrote to Ellen Kay after Mama's death. In that letter, which is a really moving letter, he used three words, we lived richly. And those words appear in his handwriting on her gravestone there a mile from Taliesin. The indignity that Olgavana did to Mama was shockingly was was even less than the indignity she did to Frank. I mean, I mean <laughs> exhuming his body and taking him to Arizona. Really, what what an, what? How dare she? Well, it was all of a piece. I think one of the reasons that tormented her about this was that she um, knew he had wanted to be buried very close to Mama. Mama's grave is just a, a short stone's throw from where Wright was buried. And that simply couldn't stand as far as Olga Vanna was concerned. So part of that exhumation of Wright's body um, after Olga Vanna had died was her final um, revenge, you might say, against Mema to get Wright away from her. Um, because otherwise, where was where was the union to be between Olga Vanna and Frank Lloyd Wright? It was between Mema and Frank Lloyd Wright. If you could interview Mema, what are some of the things you would ask her? Well, of course, I would ask some of the questions you've asked me, which are, um, for example, how did you feel about those teachings of motherhood and the priority of motherhood that you were translating in Ellen Kay's works for women in America? And how did you feel about that in the context of your own um, life story? I would have liked to ask her also something that's in the book and we haven't discussed yet, but just before she was killed, at Taliesin, she had um, a very interesting meeting with uh, the famous fem feminist, um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And Gilman had been something of an opponent intellectually of Ellen Kay. And there, Mema and Charlotte Perkins Gilman were in the same place having dinner together. Uh, she mentions this to Ellen Kay, but in a very oblique kind of way that's very hard to interpret. And I would love to ask Mema, so how did that go <laughs> in that this conversation with her? 
I would ask her also, what was her relationship with Edwin like? What did they really find um, to be the, the thing that brought them together in the first place? And why did she become so adamant about leaving? Was it simply because uh, Wright was such a, a charismatic figure? Uh, or was it that Edwin was more negative than uh, we seem to believe? I don't know. So um, one could ask Mema all kinds of questions about her adventures in Europe, how what it was like, because she lived there alone uh, for a major part of the time that she was there. She was right, was elsewhere, either in Berlin or traveling back to the US. Mema had to make her life in Europe working by herself and living there alone in different places um, in, in Berlin and uh, Leipzig. So I would like to ask her a lot about that life. There's so much of the story that I still wish I knew um, uh, because she was an extraordinary woman doing things that most women of her era never would have dreamed of. I mean, starting with, with the time she spent in the Dakota Territory as, as a teenager. <laughs> yes, that's right. She was that kind of uh, person that she, even at the age of 16, uh, with her sister, uh, joined an excursion party into the Dakota Territory um, that took them all the way north within, I would say, 60 miles of the Canadian border to a place called Devil's Lake in uh, what is now North Dakota. And they did riding, hunting, fishing. These were not um, just, you know, refined urban women who didn't want to get their, um, uh, their hands on the uh, rifles and fishing tackles and so forth. They were, she, they got out there and really um, engaged with um, an excursion party in a way that just never was done uh, by women of that age and of that background. They were not glamping. They were they were out there in, in, in the real world. Yeah. Well, it is an extraordinary story. We don't get to ask Mema those questions, but if you read A Brave and Lovely Woman, Mema Borthwick and Frank Lloyd Wright by her second cousin thrice, re thrice removed, we loved, I, I love the fact that you say, I went to the family genealogy, like everyone's got their family genealogy printed out that they can check. Oh yeah, there's there's my second cousin thrice removed. Uh, yeah. From our, our good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. Mark, thank you very much. That That's all the time we've got. As I say, it's, a, it's quite a story and you tell the story very well. I'll be back on the last Monday of July with my friend, Michael Dorgan, his book, No Fight, No Blame. Andrew Thomas will be in the seat next week. His guest will be John West. The book is Lessons and Carols. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs, Charlie Pittman, engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison listener-sponsored community radio.